Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast where once again we are looking at the 1955 epic Land of the Pharaohs. This is the second on two parts of this film, so it's probably recommended that you listen to the first part first. It's really up to you. Basically, in that first part, I went over the background information, and then I looked at the historical accuracy for roughly about the first half of the film. In this one, instead, I'm going to be looking over the historical accuracy for the remainder of the film, and then I'm just going to review it and rate it out of 10. But before that, it is time for my dramatic intro. Right, you are a highly regarded architect. Therefore, when a large Egyptian army begins to approach your city, the people turn to you to create defences. You build a number of impressive traps. The Egyptian army arrives, and as they approach, you wait with bated breath, hoping that it will be enough. The battle begins, and your traps are sprung. At first, the Egyptians are in a fight for their lives, but they persevere, the city falls, and soon you are captured. However, this is not the end for you. Impressed by your architectural skill, the king has a task for you. As such, he takes you as a slave back to the land of the pharaohs. Okay, we have arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here I'm just going to go over the second part of the film, basically just saying what it gets right and what it gets wrong. Last time we ended things off with Khufu, the the pharaoh, 
choosing the design for his tomb. During this scene, Vashtar, a slave who was captured during a recent campaign, is asked to be the architect of Khufu's pyramid. It is then revealed that if he accepts, in order to keep the details of its construction a secret, he would have to die at the same time as the pharaoh. This was absolutely not done in ancient Egypt and in fact there are so many issues here. First of all, the Great Pyramid was not built by slaves and the architect of the pyramid was also most certainly not a slave. Secondly, the idea of people dying alongside the king in ancient Egypt outside of the First Dynasty was not a thing. Remember, we are in the Fourth Dynasty during this film. Thirdly, although slavery was most certainly a thing during ancient Egypt, typically they would be taken from a foreign land, made to perform a task and then let go, often to allow them to go back to their homeland. The reason for this is actually really simple. Slavery is very expensive. Although, in fairness to the film, they do also show that it was not slaves doing the actual building of the tomb. Instead, Khufu puts out a decree to his people, and with great expectation and excitement, they come to perform the task. Then, as the years go on, the people's motivation for the project begins to die. As it does, Khufu's cruelty is revealed, and the whips come out. So although Khufu is shown as cruel in this film, in fairness, the majority of the building is not done by slaves, which is accurate. During this scene in which Khufu is picking his tomb, he also talks about a campaign he has just been on where he took over a Kushite city. This is supposed to be where Vashtar and presumably the rest of the slaves in the film come from. This would mean that he travelled south into Nubia, so modern day Sudan, as this is where the Kushite empire came from. There are unfortunately though quite a few issues here. Firstly, if the slaves he brought back were supposed to be Nubian, then it's fair to say there's a substantial amount of whitewashing in this film. In ancient Egyptian art, they are always depicted as having very dark skin. Further, at this time, the main culture in Nubia was the Kerma culture. It is fair to say that the Kushite Empire eventually emerged from this culture, but not until around about 780 BC, so unless Khufu is a time traveller, this would not really be possible. When they start building the pyramid in the film, they show how the workers moved the blocks from the quarry. And in fairness, they do get a few parts right here. First things first, they show people dragging blocks towards the Nile on sledges, where they are loaded onto boats. It's actually pretty good that they've used sledges here rather than wheeled vehicles, as the wheel of transportation in ancient Egypt did not arrive until around about the second intermediate period the time period immediately before the New Kingdom. Further, the blocks were indeed loaded onto boats and sailed along the Nile to get them to the building location. However, one picky point here, the boats are shown with their sails up. The Nile flows from south to north, and as such, they would have had their sails down as the flow of the Nile would have taken them towards the pyramid. Interestingly, because of this, even in Egyptian art, you can tell which way a boat is sailing. Sails up means they're going north to south, against the flow of the Nile. Sails down, south to north, with the flow of the Nile. At one point, they show the sarcophagus being taken into the tomb. And I will say, 
they actually call it a sarcophagus, which is correct. Basically, a sarcophagus is a box designed to hold the coffins of the deceased. Meanwhile, the coffin is the box that holds the deceased. As my regular listeners will know, this is one of the most common mistakes that films make. So it is good that they avoided it here. Nearing the 40-minute mark in the film, we are introduced to Nelifer, a princess from Cyprus played by Joan Collins. She arrives in Egypt to offer herself as tribute to the pharaoh instead of a hefty amount of grain, oil and cattle. First things first, Cyprus did not really have any contact with Egypt until the New Kingdom, so over a thousand years after the death of Khufu. And at that point, the relationship between the two civilizations was more kind of trade-based and diplomatic in nature. In fact, Cyprus would not fall under Egyptian occupation until about the 26th dynasty. Therefore, the idea of the pharaoh collecting taxes from them here in the 4th dynasty is just a little bit off. You know, just by 2,000 years or so. And to be honest, during the Old Kingdom, the king taxing foreign lands at all was not really a thing. As mentioned earlier, at this time, there was no professional army in Egypt. Instead, the king would conscript people from the population of Egypt, and they would go on expeditions to foreign lands. They would take what they want and then leave. At this point, as it would have been costly to hold onto this land, especially if you don't have a, you know, permanent army, the locals would more often than not quickly reclaim that land until Egypt decided they wanted to do another expedition there. It wasn't really until the Middle Kingdom that Egypt tried to hold onto locations outside of Egypt in any major capacity. So, for instance, in the 12th dynasty, which was during the Middle Kingdom, several forts were established in Nubia to try and hold on to those positions. Moving on, although the pharaoh initially refuses Princess Nelifer's offer, eventually he makes her into his wife, and at this point, for her entertainment, in, well, in his own words I want to point out, he says that he's going to take on another god in combat. At this point, a bull is led out for him to fight. In fairness, throughout Egyptian history, there was a very important Egyptian bull deity known as the Apis Bull. According to the Egyptians, the Apis Bull was the living manifestation of the god Ptah on Earth, and was also called the Son of Ptah. He acted as an intermediary through which mankind could communicate with this creator god. In fact, the Apis cult was one of the most enduring in all of Egyptian history, being first attested in the First Dynasty and lasting through until about 400 AD, so well after Pharaonic Egypt had come and gone. This means that the Apis bull lasted longer than the actual pharaoh. There were also other famous bull deities in a similar vein. For instance, you had the Bucchus bull and the Menevis bull, However, the Booker's Bull did not come around until the end of Pharaonic Egypt. The Menevis Bull, on the other hand, also was attested from the First Dynasty, and had its cult centre at Heliopolis. This location is not too far from the ancient city of Memphis, where the Apis Bull has its cult centre. So, if you were to walk it, in ancient Egypt I mean, it would probably take you about nine hours to walk between the cities of Memphis and Heliopolis. So essentially, we can establish that this bull here 
is probably supposed to be the Apis Bowl, but may have also been the Minevis Bowl. Either way, I do find it hard to believe that the Pharaoh would be fighting it. These bulls were supposed to be treated with the utmost respect and were given very good lives. They were treated as the manifestations of gods on earth. And so it's fair to say that beating them up would not be that advisable. Also, if this is supposed to be the Apis Bull, then the markings are all wrong. The Apis Bull was supposed to be black all over, except for a small white triangular patch on its forehead. When an Apis Bull died, another one would be chosen, and it was this marking that was supposed to show which bull was going to take the position next. The Minevis Bull, on the other hand, was supposed to be black all over, and so it could be argued that this is supposed to be that bull. You still wouldn't be beating it up, but you could make that argument, I guess. During the building of Khufu's pyramid in the film, Vashtar, the sort of, you know, slave architect, is given many priests to help him. All of these have had their tongues cut out to keep them from telling the secrets of the tomb. This is purely fictional. There is absolutely no evidence for this in ancient Egypt whatsoever. Further, once again, it is made clear that these priests would be buried with the king. We have already established that this practice had not been a thing since the first dynasty. Further, when they are leading the workers into the pyramid, they blindfold them so they do not know what part of the pyramid they are working on, and also have to lead them past traps made up of spikes. As kind of alluded to in the last episode, such traps are completely fictional, they're not found in pyramids or any tombs really in ancient Egypt. Later still in the film, we see some of the slaves eating stew, which has many herbs and spices. The diet in ancient Egypt was typically made up of bread, beer and occasionally fish. Interestingly, you can actually see this in the archaeological evidence. Typically, the teeth of poorer members of the society are ground down but do not tend to have calluses as they were not eating that much sugar. Richer members of the society do have calluses and their teeth tends to be less ground down as they are eating sweeter, more kind of sugary, fruity food. Towards the end of the film, Princess Nelifer gifts the son of Khufu's principal wife a flute. How absolutely lovely of her. I'm sure she doesn't have any ulterior motives at all. None whatsoever. No, of course there's ulterior motives. Um, what's actually happening here is basically she's trained a snake to be attracted to the sound of the flute, hoping to kill the principal wife. I shall talk a little bit about whether I like this scene and, well, how practical it is a bit later on. But for now, in terms of the history, shockingly, there's quite a few issues here. Firstly, this type of snake charming comes from India, not Egypt. Secondly, although there were flutes in Egypt from, well, from very early on in the pre-dynastic period, typically they were much longer than the ones shown in the film. When looking at Nelifer's motivations here, she does this because she wants to kill the pharaoh's principal wife so that she can become his main queen. By doing so, she believes that on the king's death, she will rule. In fairness to the film, it is also specified that she would rule as co-regent alongside the king's son. To be honest, this is actually pretty plausible. 
There are plenty of instances in ancient Egypt where a pharaoh comes to the throne, you know, let's say six years old or something like that. And in such instances, it was very usual for their mother to rule as a co-regent alongside them. They may have been the next manifestation of Horus on Earth, after all, but they were still far too young to be making their own decisions. Overall, therefore, this film is in all honesty pretty terrible when it comes to historical accuracy. Amongst other parts, we have Khufu defeating a Kushite city during the Old Kingdom. This was a time period where the Kushite Empire would not have existed and wouldn't do for another, well, almost 2,000 years. We also have priests having their tongues cut out and people dying alongside the pharaoh. Both of these in the film are supposed to be done to stop the secrets of the tomb coming out. All very dramatic and entertaining. Also, all complete nonsense. In fairness, however, the film does get a few parts, admittedly mostly incidentally correct. For instance, it shows that the actual building of the pyramids was not done by slaves, but it was instead done by the subjects of the land. This is, this is accurate. And it does also specify that Princess Nelifer would have been the co-regent to the new king if he came to the throne at a young age. As she had basically murdered the former principal wife who happened to be the new king's mother, this is actually pretty accurate as, well, essentially, the new king would have been far too young to be making decisions. Right, we have now arrived at the review section of the episode. So here I'm simply going to go over the film, saying what I like and dislike, and then rate it out of 10. Okay, here we go. First things first, historical accuracy aside, the opening of the film is both grand and very impressive. In this scene, we have the king coming back from a campaign with his full army, and basically there are thousands of extras in this scene. It is clear that everyone in shot is a real person, and that camera trickery hasn't had to be used to make the crowd look bigger. The organisation behind this scene alone must have cost a lot of time and money. Further, it is fair to say that the film as a whole does have a very epic feel, as well a film like this should. I mean, the clues in the name of the genre, we are talking about an epic here. This next point may only be a very small positive, but it's one that always makes me smile when I hear it in a film. At one point, a man is thrown to crocodiles, and as he lands, we hear the Wilhelm scream. If you don't know what this is, it is a scream that you have almost certainly heard before. <coughs> that one. It appears in so many films, whether it be Indiana Jones, Star Wars, uh, I don't know, The Gremlins 2, Small Soldiers. And, you know, I don't know why, I just quite like it. Probably for the same reason that I like, you know, sound effects in 80s action films. You know, when someone gets punched and he goes, <laughs> a punch doesn't make that sound, but I don't know why. It just, it just really does add to the impact. Moving on to a slightly bigger point. I also enjoy that we see Khufu's progression as a character during the film. Basically, at the beginning, he is not necessarily a good character, but he does seem to have some honourable traits, and, and as such, people seem to love him. However, as his greed for treasure becomes more apparent, he also appears more sort of like evil, and it becomes clear that he 
does not care about the well-being of his people. This can be seen in the building of his pyramid, as at first the people are all too happy to work on the pyramid and to see being chosen as a great honour. However, as the years go on, they become less motivated, and it is at this point that the whips come out. Khufu's wish for a grand tomb also leads to many ruthless actions, such as having the tongues of priests cut out so that they cannot give away the secrets that lead to his treasure. Historical accuracy aside, I think the message here is quite clear. It is the idea that greed can breed evil, and that it can be people's undoing. Further, the film does manage to have a few likeable characters as well, and it is very noticeable that not only are these characters very honourable and virtuous, but they are also not greedy. They are generally the poorer members of the films, the slaves. More specifically, Bashtar and his son Centaur. For instance, at one point, Centaur is helping his father to build the pyramid. If he is caught doing so, he will also have to die alongside the pharaoh in order to keep the construction a secret. Khufu almost dies in the pyramid, and Centaur saves him, basically sealing his fate. If he had left the king to die, it would have been far better for him. But Centaur's honour and virtue is more important to him than his potential fate. So once again, this goes along well with the film's main theme. It is very noticeable, in fact, that the richer members of society in the film either start off bad or are corrupted with time. Further, this greed always leads to the character's downfall. Meanwhile, the poorer members of society always keep their honour. One of the most iconic scenes in this film is when Princess Nelifer tries to kill Khufu's principal wife by giving her son a flute that attracts a serpent. First things first, I want to point out the obvious. This may be one of the most impractical and convoluted ways of killing someone I have ever seen. So much of this relies on coincidence, like for instance, the queen seeing the snake in the first place or even a child having interest in the flute to begin with. He is, after all, a royal prince. He's probably got quite a lot of stuff to, you know, like, play with, essentially. But to be honest with you, regardless of how silly this scene is, it is also very entertaining and colourful. In fact, I would actually say, regardless of all the flaws here, it is still one of the best scenes in the film. After all, you know, a film is supposed to be entertaining, so I think you can get away with a certain level of silliness. I will also say that this film did keep my interest until the very end, where, well, I should probably quickly say, spoiler, in case you haven't watched this film and you want to see it first, but Queen Nelifer ends up getting buried alive with the king against her will. Once again, this happens because of her own greed, as she's trying to get hold of the king's treasure, which has been buried with him. So we have the continuing theme of greed being people's undoing. As already pointed out, this is inaccurate, and to be honest with you, there is a part of me that worries that such scenes do give false depictions of ancient Egyptian society. Though in a way, considering I mainly review mummy movies, I suppose there is a certain level of hypocrisy in me here. And in fairness, this did very much fit in with the theme of the film, and it was also a very suitably dramatic end as well. Now, unfortunately, there are a few issues with this film, and generally just things that it could have done better. For a start, the king's principal wife could have had a bigger part. 
to show how small her part was, I have literally had to Google the film to find out what her name is. She's called Queen Naila. And I will say, this is nothing against Kermia, the French actress who plays the part. It's just that this character needed more screen time. We barely got to know her. And to be honest with you, this is a bit of a theme of the film. The film is only an hour and 40 odd minutes long, but it has the feel of an epic along the lines of the Ten Commandments or Cleopatra. Both of these films are well over three hours long, and such films deserve to be that kind of length. If Land of the Pharaohs had been a bit longer, it could have established such characters as Queen Naila a little bit more. If this were the case, then her death in the film may have had more impact. It also feels as if the film is trying to be multiple genres at once, but never really entirely committing to any of them. It is kind of a romance with a love triangle between Queen Naila, Princess Nelifer and Khufu, but this is never really fully fleshed out, largely because said queen does not have any screen time. How can you possibly have a love triangle when one of the characters is basically completely absent outside of a couple of scenes? The film also tries to be an epic adventure with a few different military campaigns, but you never see any of these and you just see the armies leaving and returning. It is also supposed to be a tragedy, but once again, because of the film's short length, you never get the chance to know the characters, so why would I care? So basically put, this film either needed to pick a genre and run with it, or it needed at least another hour so that it could be the epic that it clearly wants to be. Unfortunately though, the approach it takes makes the entire story feel very shaky. When it comes to the reviews for this film, they were the very epitome of mixed. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critical consensus of 80%, which, in fairness, is really good. However, the audience score here is only 44%. Then, on IMDb, it has a score of 6.6 .6 out of 10. In general, it is seen as a bit miscast and fairly clunky, but it is also considered as underrated and a little bit overlooked as well. If I'm honest, despite my criticisms of this film, I do actually agree. I found it really hard to rate, as technically, it's not really a very good film, and there is a lot wrong here. However, I did also undeniably enjoy it. And I don't mean enjoy it in like a so bad that it's good way, I mean I enjoyed this for the reason it was made. So, do I think that this film is an absolute masterpiece? Absolutely not, it's just not. But do I feel that the film is better off forgotten? Also no. At the end of the day, I understand why the reviews for this film are so varied. But for myself, I don't think I can give this film a 7 out of 10, but I also don't think it's a, say, 6 out of 10 or even a 6.5. So I'm going to give it a 6.8 out of 10. This is by no means the best film ever made, not even close. But for a lazy Sunday afternoon, it is worth sitting down and watching, especially if it comes on the TV. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you enjoyed these last two episodes. And if you have, why not consider liking, subscribing, leaving a comment or a review. And join me next time for my Halloween episode where we shall be looking into Scooby-Doo in Where's My Mummy from 2005.
This film was actually picked via a poll on my Instagram page. It was between this film and Dracula from 1931, starring Bella Lugosi. If I'm honest, I thought the results were going to be fairly sort of 50-50, but Scooby-Doo won by about 70%. So I guess the people have spoken. But I tell you, if this film is inaccurate in any way, I will freak out. There is no excuse for historical inaccuracy in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking. I hope you all have a really good week. And see you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.